Red on Red. This is Red on Red, Cork's new music podcast dropping every Wednesday evening via Cork's Red FM and redextra.ie. We're also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. I'm Mike McGrath-Brien, and this week, we're bringing you the first of two live podcasts from Quiet Lights Festival last month, recorded in the intimate surrounds of Winthrop Avenue, the new venue that comprises part of the recently overhauled Cypress Avenue complex on Caroline Street. From his days playing music in alternative outfit Juno Falls, to working full-time in the film industry, filmmaker Miles O'Reilly already had a life steeped in creativity before he set his sights on the medium of the music documentary. Combining his life's passions under the Arbutus Yarns manner in the middle of the decade, he set about documenting the steady rebirth and rise of folk and traditional music in Ireland, working with the likes of trad fusionists Kila, folk duo Ye Vagabonds, and virtuoso fiddler Quivin O'Reilly, among many others. 2017 saw him step further into the limelight with the announcement of This Ain't No Disco, a resurrection of the Cork-based alternative Irish television classic. Collaborating with original presenter and selector extraordinaire Donald Neen, the series' first run was greeted rapturously by longtime Irish music heads, glad of the return of a regular platform for new Irish artists and their performances. This Ain't No Disco returns for season two this Christmas, with episode one available online on the 22nd for subscribers to This Ain't No Disco's Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash This Ain't No Disco, and on general social media release across Facebook and Vimeo on Christmas Day. New episodes will continue into 2020, featuring a wide array of established and emerging Irish artists, and you can catch up on season one for free on demand at thisaintnodisco.ie. And on that note, let's take you to the conversation happening in a quiet side room opposite the hustle and bustle of an ongoing monster match in the main bar. This is Quiet Lights Festival's artist-in-residence, Miles O'Reilly, in conversation on the Red on Red podcast. Miles, how's it going, boss? It's great. You are the artist-in-residence for Quiet Lights Festival happening throughout the weekend. Um, I suppose maybe take us into kind of what you've made so far of Quiet Lights, you know, the experience of the festival for you. I found that folk music and traditional music have always been kind of locked away in a book of the dead. In the, in the far-flung reaches of Ireland, it would be held on to dearly. You know, this is like the gold, uh, the crown in the church. These are like, so you could never really stray outside of the conventional way of performing folk or trad until recently, until the last 10 years or so, where it seems folk, tr- folk and traditional music are borrowing from contemporary sources. And so coming to meet us in the future just a little bit. And I think because audiences now are more likely to listen to folk and trad music than they would have been 10 years ago, because there was a very kind of the stigma behind the singer-songwriter and, and the acoustic guitar. and. Now it's way more than that, as it always has been. There's so many cultural and moral lessons within folk music, but at the moment it just seems to be it has met us in the future. Yeah. And and everybody who appreciates music from all genres suddenly is now listening to folk and trad music again because it has made it has held a hand out to the future and asked for a lift up. And audiences in general now are are listening to that more for all the obvious reasons that it has so much cultural expression. And so here we're getting the both. We're getting, there's some contemporary, far-flung classical contemporary music today that I saw today that came in Gilmore and Kate Ellis and it's almost as if then the other bands that are satellites around the gig that I saw this contemporary gig are borrowing from, from classical and classical are also borrowing from folk now. And it just seems it's nice to have a commune of all these people who are reaching to, to 
to appease their audiences who are also reaching to understand ancient tradition. Speaking of reaching to audiences and speaking of kind of putting the hand out, we'll talk a little bit more about your involvement with Quiet Lights a little bit later on, but first let's talk about your own reaching out to an audience as a musician. Um, you were talking with Tony Clayton Lee earlier as part of his Culture Vultures panels, which you should get to when you see them advertised in the festival panel. Tony Clayton Lee is a fantastic music journalist with 20, 30 years of experience, just an encyclopedic knowledge of the game completely. And see, they, they, they recognize, real recognizes real outside. Um, but I was reminded of something there as I was watching the two of you talking this morning over at the Roundy. And, you know, you had performed with Juno Falls. You were Juno Falls then for the second album. Um, I remember seeing you upstairs from here uh, in Cypress Avenue about nine years ago. You were headlining a gig. I had gone along to see Boss Valenti because I was on a massive therapy kick and I just wanted to see Graham Hopkins in person because I had never seen therapy live to that point. The band therapy, just to make it therapy clear, question clear mark. to audiences. Yeah, as opposed to seeing a therapist, which is another <laughs> podcast completely. But uh, having been on a kick for a therapy question mark and seeing Boss Valenti and kind of like realizing that they were different and that Graham Hopkins is a lot more of a range because I had been kind of in that bubble. Um, it was a bit of an eye-opener. And then to see kind of Juno Falls, which was you know, cinematic in scope, and which was very lovely in scope as well, was, was, was quite the eye-opener. So it's very serendipitous that we're back here kind of eight or nine years later talking about yeah. how to frame music as well. So yeah. thank ten, you for taking the time. Ten to years later. Ten years, is it? Yeah. Oh, it is 2019. Terrible. Mm. <laughs> um, but I suppose Juno Falls had happened across a rich vein of hype by that time. Um, you'd signed to V2, which was Richard Branson's post-Virgin label, Elbow, Mercury, Rev were on it. There was also a tranche of Irish artists like yourselves, like uh, Declan O'Rourke, like um, Duke, Duke Special. Special. Yeah. Jape. So, you know, maybe talk to us a little bit about Juno Falls and working in the music business full-time, the lessons that it taught you, and just kind of the whole experience of kind of being through the old music industry grinder. Yeah, I'd say the most important thing to know for any musician is what work is within the music industry if you're a performer. And work should never, ever be all the brain power it takes to understand managing a team of people who manage you, you know? So it's, it's really, musicians can overthink being in the music industry um, and it'll dilute their expression and their performance. That's the major thing I've learned, is that the less you think about the industry you're in, the more you can express yourself enthusiastically and 100%. If you think too much about the industry, it seems to take over even your live performance. Mm. Even in the middle of a song, you'll be thinking, oh, they want to hear the chorus. I'll just, I'll just wink to the drummer and we'll get the chorus along now. But you're just not thinking, it's not about your integrity, it's more about appeasing your audiences because you're very paranoid about needing audiences all the time. And that shouldn't be how a musician has to think. And it's how they're programmed, unfortunately. Being through the grinder then, first of all, is on an independent basis with your first record and then with V2 thereafter. You know, naturally you get exposed to a lot of the industry element. And, you know, you were talking about this earlier with, with Tony as well, but for those of us that weren't there, maybe talk to us a little bit about kind of the, you know, that trap that you'd fallen into regarding it being a bit more analytical regarding contacts, regarding the industry yeah. and all of this. 
Well, the trap, it was easy to fall into. You're like a struggling musician. You don't know why things aren't happening for you. And you learn about a music industry and that there's people within the industry all have roles that can help you. And so the first thing I did was get the Hot Press yearbook and go through all the names. And there must be 100 names, but I figured out what they all did, journalists and promoters and the rest of it. And this, as a musician, all... I really wanted to do was express myself, you know, express this emotion I have within me and I'm being scientific every day about how I can get through and who I have to meet and everything else. Some of the most impressive musicians that I've met in my life, filming musicians, have never had to do that. They've never been to that place, you know. It's a completely different world now from what it was 10 years ago even because opportunities existed before that don't, but also... Opportunities exist now that didn't back then. The ubiquity of streaming services, the immediacy of of video sites, of audio sites, which we'll talk about because they've been a great benefit to your own career as well. Um, you found out from one of your label mates that V2 disappeared. Yeah. That was not <laughs> I'd say. I was really, really mad about a band called Elbow. And I loved all their records. Well, they only had three at the time in 2006 when I signed to V2. Yeah. But I, I, I was absolutely hell-bent on being signed to V2. And I got there, and I just knew who to talk to and who to impress. And um, it took over my creative process so much. By the time I was recording a record for V2, I didn't like any of it. It was all just architecture for other people to live in, and I could never occupy it myself. I mean, you know, realising that you had been in that trap and, you know, for one way or another getting out of it, you know, the realities of living in and around music and, you know, maintaining a creative career uh, would kind of make themselves obvious or kind of put themselves in sharp focus then and there. I suppose maybe talk to us a little bit about kind of acclimatising to the realities of music and finding your way into film. Because you'd had a profound interest in film growing up. You'd a profound interest in film as an accompaniment to music. But you kind of worked as a videographer post-music. Talk to us a little bit about that and the realities of it. As a musician, it was 100% absolutely only ever going to be a musician. Suddenly I found that you can also utilize music expression in film. And you can also add a visual and it doesn't and and when i started doing that for the for the fun of it on youtube i put up like um slow motion footage of people swimming and i used to rob different soundtracks and i found that so enjoyable and i didn't have to create the soundtracks it's just by putting them both together it was so exciting Mentioned, you know, commonly with your name when we're talking about direction is Werner Herzog, who yeah. you cite as a massive influence. Because he edits to music, you know. He yeah. chooses the music first. He has a story and he chooses the music first. He'll never write screenplays where he has to explain what he's doing every minute. He'll just go, no, I'm creating a situation. The situation will unfold and I'll make sure I'll document any single way it goes. But this situation is bound to unfold in a chaotic manner or a very interesting dramatic manner and I have a soundtrack but the soundtrack would determine even what the situation was and so when it came to editing the footage from the whatever situation volcano he created he already has a soundtrack that he edits to so the footage just sticks to the to the musical 
and you know, kind of realizing that and kind of seeing how that broke down. Was that was that a bit of a click point then regarding like yeah. what you wanted to do next? You know, the light bulb going off. Well, yeah, absolutely. It was far more about what music can explain. It can't really communicate fully unless you're standing in front of the musician. Everybody has their favorite record, but when they see that band perform that record for the first time, it's more than a favorite record. It's, yeah. you know, it's eternal then. But there's an extra communication from being in the room with music when it's being played that I understood suddenly. And then, I guess with that, just being a musician became quite a two-dimensional thing. And, and just being a musician who just writes your own things, it just became such a box. And realizing there's so much music in the world, um, and and immediately I guess I I had I had a bunch of heroes then that I understood I had to follow. And but like, how did you arrive then at music documentary specifically? Because you know that was your that I was needed your to point. learn. I needed to learn. You know, I'm I'm a musician. I done I headlined other voices the main stage. And I got off that stage and I actually smashed my guitar and I never did another gig after that. I was just so upset with being a musician and I didn't understand why. But when I would look at musicians who are able to express themselves effortlessly and they've never had to think once about the music industry or how it works, they're like people like Liam Whaley, DJ like Donald Deneen at the time who I'd never met. Yeah. Um, Ronan Osnulik and Keela, uh, Glenn Hansard. Uh, th these were all heroes of mine because they'd never had to really think about the music industry as much as I did, um, which destroyed my enthusiasm to perform. Um, and suddenly, f filming them, I was learning from them. And I'm still learning from them, but I don't have to feel any pressure to perform, which is lovely. The process of learning led you to settle upon music documentary as a medium, but the idea and creation of our beautiful yarns, I imagine, is an, another entire story. Because when I started watching your stuff, it seemed to me as though the kind of aesthetic that you had been going for had already arrived. I saw the stuff that you had done with Ye Vagabonds, etc., and that was kind of my introduction to your work prior to This Ain't No Disco becoming a thing. Talk to us a little bit, I suppose, about how the idea for what our beautiful yarns is how it grew, how it evolved, and just kind of taking it from, you know, a name for music videography to a living project across multiple media. Well, there was a blog attached to it at one stage as well, wasn't it? It's kind of, I can only afford a blog website, so I can only yeah. go like, okay, 26th, I'm going to post a blog, and there's the video, you know. I'd love to be Netflix, you know, it's just like hover over, and you'll hear whatever. The Netflix of Irish music, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Fucking, how do you make a Netflix? Anyway... I've got enough material there for that. So it's it's a it's a lot of music performances, and they're all they're all very honest, sincere session kind of performances where the stage isn't always involved. There's not always a podium and lights. Uh, it's not it's not a setup thing. I'd much rather that it was music just performed in a natural space. And uh, 99 percent of all music is just performed in kitchens and living rooms and rehearsal rooms and bedrooms, you know. And so I I go for that. That's beautiful. Our conversations are had on park benches. Uh, we'll do a song on a park bench. It's the same thing. Um, and the, our beautiful yarns, for me, for two days in every month, I might get a job that would pay for me to film all the time. And so I have another three and a half weeks 
to spend, what am I going to do? Well, I'm just going to find music and I'm just going to film people anyway. I'm just not going to stop doing that anyway. And I did, you know, that's what it still is. There might be one week in every month where I'm, at, I'm, I'm asked to come and do something, but then the other three, I get to be free and film whatever I want. In terms then of putting that together, because you mentioned earlier Ronan O'Snowdy, you mentioned heroes of yours that you had wanted to film yeah. and that you had kind of seen as like fantastic subjects for multiple media. Yeah. Um, I suppose, talk to us about the, that list that you put together, because at the outset of this project, there were people that you had in mind that you wanted to document and you wanted yeah. to catch in their own environment. Talk to us a little bit about kind of just assembling a list and just kind of knowing that that was what you had wanted to do at that very early stage, how much of that vision was there. Yeah, it was all there straight away. I was watching Werner Herzog movies and binging on about 70, all of them. And binging on them a few times. And I had a moment where I actually cried to myself and put the guitar away and I knew I was never going to pick it up again. And I wrote that list on the same night. I was like, I'm going to study all these people and what they do. I'm so intrigued by them, I always have. Why can't I just devote my life to getting their message across because it didn't seem like anybody else really understood. So that's what I've been doing. And um, it started with Liam Whaley and Ronan O'Snellig uh, and Donald Neen and Cuevin O'Reilly. Cuevin O'Reilly was the one you kind of got a little bit more traction on because, you know, yeah. for a relatively static filming subject, as somebody that's there playing, you know, a, di a different violin or, you know, yeah. whatever fantastical instrument he's pulling out for yeah. this, this, this performance, um, you know, you were able to get a lot of expression out of him and you were able to get a lot of movement out of his performance. Um, talk to us, I suppose, about how that affected you going forward because that was the point that you would kind of recognize yourself that you started getting a bit of traction was Kiwi Norella. Werner Herzog, I'll speak as a Herzogian. Okay. So Herzog calls there's visual moments in film and there's visual moments in life where all time can stop and you're maybe looking at, the, maybe you're drawn to a face, but the, everything just stops. And it's, called, it's an ecstatic moment in life. And Werner Herzog has them in all his films where his cinematographers are so tuned into finding ecstatic moments that he lets them go away. They're so, they're so visually intuitive. But that, obviously, that's how he, why he chooses them. But they create, they, they find these ecstatic moments that happen in cinematography where you can look and tune out. It's a middle distance. Nothing's being described to you, but it's a beautiful sight. And you know it's so natural that it's not trying to explain anything to you. So you, you seem to look and tune out. My first visual ecstatic moment happened with Cuevino Rahalik, where just a, a, these certain coincidences happen with light, with his performance, with in his eyes, and, um, and, and with my camera movements, where there's an extra level. It just seems like you're suddenly in the room with him, and not just that, you're in the room with him and he's giving you a giant hug. Um, and for me, it's like teleportation. You know, if I can achieve that, if I can bring people into the room with Queeveen and they can experience that, it's that extra bit that gives them a lump in their throat. And you don't, you don't usually get that on two dimensions. It has to be in a room. But if you can get your lump in your throat watching a computer screen, I thought that was a revelation to me. And Queeveen was the one who kind of like, kind of effortlessly, and the sun actually, uh, at the time, 
Um, the sun, this, this beam of sun came in through this the window. This wasn't golden hour, was it? lit him. No, it was just a cloudy day, but this like, sun came down through the warehouse window and lit his face. And he looked up at the, up at the, up at the sunbeam and he's playing this 20-second note and he didn't blink for 20 seconds. And suddenly the smile just ruptured over his face. <laughs> and if you're watching the video and you're just staring into the middle distance of Cuevin's kind of out-of-focus face, and you suddenly see it glow, like just like the note was doing and just like the sun was doing, you're there. It's a, you're actually Cuevin, you know, you can feel it. And, and it's just, it's a note that'll just resonate stronger than if, if, if you were aware you're watching something, if, you're, if you know what I mean. It, it brings you there. It, it, gets rid of the screen. You know? The pursuit of ecstatic truths and the pursuit of those moments to film, etc., has that's really... the addiction for me. That's yeah. really... And that's also, like, a recognisable thing across your body of work in that, you know, a very strong... The one thing that I notice about your, your body of work, and it was something that I was talking to you about before we hit record, is your sense of place. You know, every filmmaker loves going off and shooting a load of B-roll because it's the most meditative thing in the world to kind of capture everything else that's happening secondarily to the story that you're telling so that you can cut it in and further kind of wrap people in this world that you are in the middle of creating. Um, I suppose talk to us a little bit about your filmmaking process, the importance of kind of ambient filmmaking to the story that you tell. Because, like, the one thing that kind of hit me about your documentary last night, the 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 men's choir with the cellist was just, you took each individual person from this vocal quartet and you got them at work. So you had them on their farm or you had them at the facilities they were working at, the art that they were making, etc. And you told more of a story in those B-rolls while they were singing and while their music was coming across than you would have been just been able to do if you were calling it at a session video or if you were calling this at, a, at an unnarrated documentary. Yeah, I love to get their private lives. I think f what's funny about those lads is they'd watched a few of my films before I went over and they'd seen that I do love to see what they get up to outside of the performance. Um, like, I could be following Cormac Begley around. I just met him a few hours ago. I might be following him around, just dying for him to do something natural, like jump into a field and pet a cow or, or like, just... I'd go fishing or like do something that you would do outside of performance, um, because to have that in the piece that I'm making about him, the more you can explain the character of a person, the more it seems the audience are rooting for that person. So that works well with um, new music. You know, if you're, if you're looking at an artist you've never seen before, you kind of want to. I want people to kind of love them before the chorus even starts mm. so that they're rooting for them then. That happened to me, I think, watching the episode of The St. No Disco that she filmed partially in Cork. Um, I had seen Anamika Bishop perform like as part of gig lineups around the city, um, but it was really seeing what you had done with her in the apartment that she had on the north side of Cork City, etc., and just performing in a kitchen alongside the daily routine of getting around the kitchen and making breakfast and all of this. Um, like... That again, we talk about Herzog editing to music, but also, like, as an animation nerd, that also just reminds me of like successfully capturing the mundanities as a means of telling a story. Kind of really reminds me of Hayao Miyazaki 
um, the Studio Ghibli director because Lovely. he nails that down so well. Yeah. So I suppose really that kind of leads on to the next thing, which is getting into people's lives and documenting people's lives. Obviously, that requires a fair amount of trust beforehand. You know, you've accomplished that trust with a bunch of uh, performers that you kind of deal with regularly, like Ye Vagabonds, but also with one-off documentary subjects that allow you into their into their lives as a result well enough to kind it's of... It's the most important thing and I only would choose to work with artists who totally, from the moment I walk in the room, understand why I'm there. Coming in with an artist and knowing how to frame them and knowing the story you want to tell, you know, that's all well and good but if they're also not collaborating in that respect and if they don't realise that they're standing in a frame and have to kind of conduct themselves naturally as opposed to just oh, I'm in a video now or this, that, other because like, I get that being a music journalist as well. Oh, you're right for X and Y, do you? You know, here's what I want to say about X, Y, and Z. Like, no, you're an artist and I want to tell your story, your process. You don't have to come to me with any kind of pre-developed notions. Same thing with doing a podcast. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to Ophelia. I want to talk to somebody down the phone every Tuesday night inside in Studio 4 and I want to have the conversation with them about their process as opposed to what they expect to bring to a project is what I'm trying to say in a very circuitous fashion. Um, I suppose maybe talk to us about kind of what that click point is for you with an artist once that trust has been established and, you know, that creative juices start going with you regarding what you can do with them going forward. I think it's before I ever lift a camera, like, I need to be fanatical about what they do and I need to love them in the, you know, even if they don't love me back. I just, yeah, I become, I am, I I do become, I am a fanatic. of the a fan of all of the musicians I found, so that has to come first, and then it just it seems if they accept me in, they'll realize I'm more of a family member than somebody they're employing. Over the course of your time with Arbutus Yarns, you know your work finds its way to different sets of eyes, and different people kind of come up to you with ideas for collaboration, no doubt, especially off some of the stuff that you've done in terms of sessions with you vagabonds and what have you. But this ain't no disco comes about as a result of a meeting between yourself and Donald Deneen and some shared frustrations. Maybe talk to us a little bit about how this Ain't No Disco came together. What was the meeting? Right. What was the approach? Well, we had meetings literally three nights a week for three years. Donald doesn't drink, but I'd have random friends, um, all music lovers or musicians who would call over and we'd have the crack around the kitchen table. And myself and Donald had been doing some collaboration in terms of Arts Council projects that we put in applications for and succeeded in making some collaborations. So Donald was very much about interviewing people, still is, and he does them anyway, outside of No Disco, he'll get funded to make these collaborations happen or they just could be talks with people. Like we came up with the idea around the kitchen table. It was a proper session, it was great. And I actually have a manifesto written by Donald. Nice. That starts off, it's a couple of A3 pages of like what we're gonna do. It's like, this is what we're gonna, it was like a light bulb moment, it really was. It wasn't until after we came up with the idea that we remembered, all right, Donald was on no disco fuck it, let's call it No Disco. Like, why not? You own it, like. Now, this is the question here. (laughs) No Disco is a cultural touchstone for a generation of Irish weirdos. Every Wednesday night, Thursday night, on Network 2, as it was called at the time, it would have been 
pre-internet, a lot of people's only way to get My music childhood. videos from independent labels. I never did homework. Did you do homework? I was watching No Disco, for sure. By the time No Disco rolled around, for me, it was 2001, 2002. I would have been in first year of secondary school, and it was... Right, so I was six. It was, a different, it, was, it was a different time. Yeah. Um, Unine Fitzsimons had passed away. I'd seen a few episodes of her hosting it, etc., and was aware of who she was, but to me... No Disco was Leagues O'Toole. And I know that people will kind of parse No Disco via presenters and via different styles that they had as well. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, no, like, seeing No Disco back on a logo and presenting itself as an online thing was a massively exciting thing for me, and I'm sure it was for you, obviously. Oh, my God. We could be here forever talking about how music television is represented. Yeah. Um, but I suppose, really, was there any trepidation once the words No Disco had escaped somebody's mouth and couldn't be put back? <laughs> There was. Well, I love Donald. I love him the bits, but it's very hard for anyone to ask. It's very hard for him to have a schedule. He's like some of the best musicians I know. I don't know how he isn't an avant-garde, very successful avant-garde musician himself, because he thinks in, in the same way. It's like... Whatever I feel like I should do now in the present, I should do it now. But there is no future planning. Uh, or learning from the past. It's very, he lives in the present, which is why he's so personable and such a great interviewer. Yeah. Um, and also, it's why he listens to music. He can really listen. He is the needle on the record. There was no trepidation, really, at all. We, we come together. When we come together as creatives, we, we both surprise each other constantly. And that's, I guess, a, a beautiful partnership. You know, I, th I thought I knew everything, and he thinks he knows everything. And then we get together, we're like, geez, we knew nothing about anything, and now look what we're doing. So it's beautiful. What else was beautiful also was the fact that, like, for a generation of Corkonians, no disco is that bit more personal again, because the original series, the original run of it was filmed below on Father Matthew Street. Exactly, yeah. But you're doing this outside of the remit of traditional broadcast. So naturally, you have complete total 100% control over what you do. You know, Irish television, Irish music television, I suppose, is very much kind of etched into the consciousness of a generation. Before we started rolling here, we were talking about the beatbox and 2TV, talking about no disco, talking about electric ballroom, which I have very, very faded memories of, but is there. Um, you know, what are the challenges inherent to building and creating something that can be that seal of approval or that pillar of conversation regarding something that is must-see for people that want to say something. You're doing that with This Ain't No Disco and doing an amazing job. I'm not blowing smoke or anything, but it is there. I'm on Patreon. We'll talk about Patreon in a little bit. Talk to us about kind of the challenges inherent to just making that must-see again and going where people are in the process. The challenge is getting it out there to people who know, who don't know they need it. You know, people, it's all emerging music. It's mostly music you haven't heard. And we're, if we're talking about a challenge, it's getting people to actually want to hear new music. That's the challenge, is getting them to understand that actually listening to new music, I can learn things about myself that I didn't know were there, grow up and mature with music that is growing up, you know, uh, like in the underground beside them, and it's right there, and they can't see it, and they shouldn't be afraid of listening to it, and they shouldn't be afraid of going, I didn't like that band at first, but now I love them, because that's how every new band, that's how all the new bands we get into, that's how it starts, it's like, are they good? Why do I still listen to them? And then you're in love with them. The one thing about, you know, documenting music differently for me, obviously, as a music journalist and as a podcaster, but we mm. have a commonality of things here, and that is, you know, going where the people are and making people care. 
I find the easiest way to kind of go about that is to kind of present artists doing whatever they want to do, no kind of commercial boundaries, whether it's black metal or hip hop or drone or noise, and finding the human story inside of it. I look at your work and I identify quite readily. That's something that I love to see in This Ain't No Disco in your documentaries as well. Yeah. To me, This Ain't No Disco represents the visual medium and represents that must-see music broadcasting for the on-demand generation. Yeah, and we're lucky that the artists we choose are such good performers and they, you know, they, they'll, they're coming to a town near you kind of thing. Right in your backyard. That's the story that everybody needs in to get told, you know? Yeah. But... um. I suppose once season one got out and, you know, it received an incredible response as the series rolled on, was the trepidation with resurrecting No Disco as this ain't No Disco, you know, worthwhile? Like, what, how did you find the reaction and the response? Did people kind of... Were they responding just out of a place of goodwill? And at what point did you see that turn from goodwill for No Disco into support for this ain't No Disco? Yeah... Um, well, instantly, just because Donal is the head of it, you know, yeah. uh, instantly the goodwill for No Disco was there. I think our Facebook had, in three or four days, we just, I just, I'm the only one who can do it, so I opened a Facebook page, and we had 6,000 people in three days, because there's still 6,000 people out there. And his, his radio show hadn't been on for maybe three years, but there were still 6,000 people just absolutely dying to, to listen to Donald, you know, for those reasons. I mean, there is so. that demand out there for new Irish music programming that for one reason or another isn't being it's tapped like, into. It's insane at the moment. So many comments that I get, um, messages and Donald gets and This Ain't No Disco gets. So many just grateful to have been introduced to new music that has brought them somewhere new. It's a new landscape in their heads at least, you know. Mm. Um, and it's, it's therapy. It's a really important therapy. Not for therapy people. question mark, no. No, not therapy question mark. But it's really important for people to be able to feel emotions that they can't access themselves. And, you know, they've, they've accessed the emotions with all the other pop songs they know so well. It's, it's really important to, to go into new areas of your own. Uh, you did very well on Facebook video last season, actually. Yeah. Like, that was your premier way of getting out there. And for everybody that says Facebook is dead... <laughs> and, you know, to an extent, there are difficulties with, with reach and what have you, but, yeah. but at the same token, that was still a lot of how This Ain't No Disco got very early numbers very quickly. Yeah, we're very, we're very, very lucky that the demographic on Facebook seemed to be the exact kind of people at the moment, uh, not such a young market, they're the exact kind of people who are starved for new music, who absolutely want to believe that they can still be into music, and we're just reminding them that they can. It was four episodes in season one. Each season would be four episodes, and like yeah. Star Wars, every few years. Yeah. So we wait another three years after this season, and then we'll be back with a, with a third. Well, I think you did really, really well with the, the reboot season this time around. A lot of similar good feelings to Star Wars uh, episodes uh, seven to nine. Yeah, well, you know, it is that level of nerd as well. We're like, this ain't no disco, or basically five nerds, absolute music nerds, just waiting every two years till a new garden grows and going, what are the plants in here now? And you can get exclusive access to This Ain't No Disco episodes first by subscribing to This Ain't No Disco on Patreon. Patreon, Patreon or Patreon? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It could oh. be like tomato, tomato. Is, uh, so is Patreon the, uh, the American pronunciation and Patreon is the Irish? I would think the Irish would be Patreon, right? Patreon. Well, Pat. 
Patreon, patreon.com forward slash this ain't no disco, uh, where you can support this ain't no disco and its production to various extents yeah. uh, over the course of it as well. I suppose talk to us a little bit about how Patreon has kind of benefited your work because your last documentary was the result of yeah. Patreon, um, Patreon uh, yeah. production or, or Patreon contributions. Um, and this ain't no disco has you know, picked up considerable. Um, goodwill are con- considerable numbers from subscriptions etc it has great it's reliable I'm reliable and You're that's that's what I'm getting back from people as well uh, there's a thing that I, the proof is in the pudding the proof is in the pudding thank you mate but um, on Facebook pre 2015 when suddenly you had to pay for posts to be seen Beforehand, I was very fortunate to get in beforehand, yeah. where every post I made, all of my followers would see it. And it was like, it's a kind of a no-brainer. It's like, why isn't it still like that? And there was lots of other artists like me doing the same thing, Brendan Canty, Finn Keenan. And, um, and we were getting audiences and success from it. But every time we posted, people would see it. For, that died in 2015, where they're mm. like, well, no, we'll post, and we'll post to random people every time. You know, the most important thing that I learned, or the greatest thing that I gained from being on Facebook back then, was that you would, you would know that the people who are really into your work would see it again and again and again, and respond to it again and again and again, until you never criticize, but give you compliments about similar things where you know, right, I'm going to do that again in my next film because they think that works. I believe that worked too great and this communication with an audience. So that died in 2015. And the most beautiful thing about Patreon is not just that it financially supports as well and that people can tip me, but it's that I have that access again, that communication with the exact people who know exactly, who compliment me and... Uh, in the right way and it's it's if it wasn't for them I wouldn't learn you know um, so I have that again and I get paid for it this is it you see the, the, <laughs> the soundness model <laughs> it's beautiful it's beautiful and you don't have to give me a lot but it's like busking it's just like standing on the street and busking and people are giving me euros and two euros and six euros and once a week or once a month and it's great and I don't think I'm going to lose them anytime soon because not a lot of money for what I'm giving them, you know? You know, the one thing about Patreon also is your ability to offer people extras in on top of what's happening. There's going to be audio sessions available from upcoming episodes of This Ain't No Disco for people to peruse. There's going to be extra uh, interviews and extra footage as well that's available from prior episodes of New Disco and new episodes of This Ain't No Disco. Um, So I suppose really the other thing is like Patreon provides you with a community that's readily available and a soundboard that is readily accessible. But the sustainability aspect of it you know, we have the same conversation with a couple of different people that have Patreons. Uh, everybody from podcasters like Blind Boy Boat Club to musicians like Emma Langford, you know, they all provide content on a steady basis as and when it's available, or else we'll be able to provide something during fallow weeks or months where there is none that they can yeah. have. They can, they can interact with the community and provide, you know, fun bits and pieces like yeah. archive material or covers or what have you. Um, I suppose talk to us a little bit about the increasing importance of crowdfunding and sustainability. It's the future. People are going to find what they like and endorse what they like directly with no middle person 
uh, no model that they have to subscribe to to communicate to what they, with what they want. It's a direct consumer thing. It's like the marketplace. It's just I give you the euro, you give me the tomato, and that exchange is going to be that simple with regards to what we want to watch and what ent entertainment we want to have when we get home and and we're funding it ourselves. It's the model for the future. Quiet Lights, you're here as an artist in residence, and we were talking about that a little bit earlier on. You've premiered your new documentary uh, Thursday night. You have your documentary screening tomorrow, Backwards Go Forward, which was a collaboration with Jonathan Pearson of Islander Presents, Quiet Lights, Crash Ensemble, Forte Music Festival, bloody former monarchs. There was his old band, if you've ever heard them. No They're way. brilliant. Wow. Uh, he was a singing drummer uh, in former monarchs. And I hope he's not listening to this uh, thereafter because I do legitimately enjoy their music and I still have their album actually on wax. Um, but yeah, like he was a collaborator of yours on Backwards to Go Forwards, which was a, you know, a 60 minute video essay on the current wave of trad and folk in Ireland, which is something very close to both of your hearts and a collaborative thing that you could both work on. Talk to us a little bit about how that idea came together, who came together with who, what the process was. That's funny. John um, contacted me by email going, um, Miles, I think I have a job for you. And I was like, great. And he said, should we meet up? So we met up in person and we sat, I sat down in front of John and he goes, Miles, I wrote this arts application, right, this arts council application, to basically do uh, what you do. So do you want to do it? <laughs> I was like, what is it? It's like, well, it, it's very like what you do. I basically said, we'll film musicians away from the stage, um, we'll move around the country, and we'll float in and out of rooms where we hear beautiful music being played away from microphones and all the rest of it. And so I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I do. I said, well... Uh, we won the money to make it anyway, and sure, <laughs> do you want to make it? <laughs> and I was like, grand. He's like, great, because I put you down, like I put your name on the application and everything. I was like, oh, okay, we're well, great. So it took about a year of finding the right people, and when they were not busy, to be able to get in a train with, with a backpack and a Zoom recorder and find them and film them on a park bench or in a pub. Or but like releasing with Islander and uh, like. It was a bold call to release anything on Christmas Day. It was released on Christmas Day of last year, I believe. Oh, I love it, because people are starved on Christmas Day. They're looking There's for something to look at. lots of people sitting in front of the television going, what the fuck? So people are starved. And I've been putting things out on Christmas. Last year, I put two things out, and... People were overjoyed. So there's this untapped resource of people who are sitting at home doing nothing, really. Nothing. Dying, dying to, to invest their time into something that's fresh and new. But as Johnny was saying kind of earlier on at the launch, he yeah. was talking about the release of this, and he was sweating bullets trying to get everything out by Christmas night, I think it was. Yeah. Vimeo giving him hassle regarding yeah, uploads was, and yeah. all of this. And we were like, last minute. like the, the edit was literally exported on Christmas Eve. Like, um, Why do you do it to yourself? I, it's going to be the same again this Christmas. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. A little scoop. <laughs> um, so, yeah, keep an eye on patreon.com forward slash this ain't no disco for more releases, Patreon even, yeah. uh, for more video releases and more content coming from Arbutus Yarns. That was Quiet Lights Festival's artist in residence, Miles O'Reilly, in conversation at Winthrop Avenue, just off Caroline Street, on the Red on Red podcast live. Many thanks to Quiet Lights for including the podcast in the lineup, to Winthrop Avenue for having us on such a busy day, and to live recordist Tomas O'Brien 
for his work on this week's episode. This Ain't No Disco returns for Series 2 this Christmas with Episode 1 available online on the 22nd for subscribers to This Ain't No Disco's Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash This Ain't No Disco, and on general social media release across Facebook and Vimeo on Christmas Day. New episodes will continue into 2020, featuring a wide array of established and emerging Irish artists, and you can catch up for free on Season 1 on demand at thisaintnodisco.ie, as well as This Ain't No Disco on Facebook. That's all for this week's episode of Red on Red, Cork's new music podcast from Red FM and RedExtra.ie. Thank you very much for listening and if you like what you're hearing, please take the time to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify and other podcasting platforms. Every like, every share, every rate, every subscribe and every bit of word of mouth helps us spread the word of DIY music in Cork. Make sure to check out some of the artists we talked about online or at an upcoming gig. And if you'd like more Irish tunes, please be sure to listen into Green on Red on Sunday nights with Alan O'Donovan for the best of all that is Irish on Cork's Red FM 104 to 106. This has been Red on Red, and we'll talk to you next week. Red on Red.